Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. And quickly to get it out of the way, I want to give you the connecting information for our volunteer, Charlie Fabian, where you can send suggestions, ideas, documents, and so forth that you think might help us prepare segments for this program. Many of you have been doing that, and we are enormously grateful. We're kind of pleased that so many of you feel to be partners in a way with what we're doing. So please know that we appreciate as well as look at everything you send us. Once again, the place to send material, charlie, C-H-A-R-L-I-E, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Once again, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Today's program, we're going to be talking about corporations pressuring workers to come back who have been working remote. We're going to have some things to say about the economics of the war in Ukraine, about United States struggle with Chinese companies that takes a new twist but continues something left over from the Trump administration, the escalation of the war in the Middle East, which now involves the United States more directly. And finally, we're going to talk a little bit about the taxes in the United States, the tax system. We're coming up on tax season. Uh, The next two months until the 15th of April is a time when we're all forced to think about it, deal with it, suffer from it, or try to evade it. Of course, very few do that last thing, but you know what I mean. Okay, so let's jump right in. Recent reports have exposed corporations using a new tactic to get workers that have been working remotely to come back into the office. And the new tactic is a none-too-subtle threat. Companies named doing this in the press, IBM, United Parcel Service, Wayfair. Here's the way it works. Workers are told that layoffs are coming. And then workers are also told that one of the considerations that bosses will use to determine who exactly gets laid off will be whether they are remote or not. You'd have to be pretty dense not to get the message here. You better get your rear end back into the office or else. Now, what's at stake here is not just bosses doing what bosses do. It's certainly that, but I want to go one step below that and explain why. And here I'm going to borrow something from the Europeans. In Europe, all working people know, all labor unions talk about all the time, is something they call work-life balance. And here's what it means. Working people saying, look, we are not just engines to produce goods and services. We are not just tools for the profit-making of our employer. We are also mothers and fathers and lovers and friends and members of the community. 
We want to be politically active. We want to be socially active. We want to be active in our churches. We want to be full citizens. Not only that, we believe we'll be better workers if we are allowed to have a proper work-life balance. And one of the reasons we want remote jobs, we want to be able to work from home, is because there we can control our time in such a way to achieve a far better work-life balance than we can if we're not at home. Obviously, women or parents with children are an obvious example. The problem here is the fundamental conflict of interest between employer and employee. Because what the employer wants you to do is be an engine of profit. What you do in your free time, the employer, especially if they're honest, could care less. It's what you do for them that they're interested in. So if you want work-life balance, sure, you prefer remote work. If you want to be an engine of profit for your employer, well, then you can understand why they're pressing and threatening their workers and forcing them step by step to come back. And there, of course, they have the assistance of their usual bought politicians who press for the same end using city and state laws. I want to turn next to the Ukraine war. To give you an economics analysis you might not have thought of before. We've now had pretty much two years of Ukraine war behind us. The suffering over there, first and foremost among the Ukrainian people. Secondly, the Ukrainian military and the Russian military that are engaged there. But also at the same time, there is the sanctions war. The decision by the United States and Western Europe to try to defeat Russia by refusing to buy the oil and gas that the Russian economy depends on exports to survive. And this really threatened Russia. You may remember at the beginning of the war in the spring of 2022, there were predictions that the Russian ruble would collapse, that Russia would be on its knees in a short time because it could not withstand the, quote, mother of all sanctions. Well, it turned out all that was wrong, even though President Biden on down said it. Here are the numbers for economic growth in the year 2023, the first full year of Ukraine war from January 1 to December 31st. And these are the final numbers having been adjusted by the IMF and other international institutions. Russia's economic growth in 2023 Two and a half percent. Quite good for Russia. Quite good in the world altogether. And interestingly, in the United States, the final number for 2023 is an identical 2.5 percent. 
So both Russia and the United States, the real combatants in Ukraine, not the ones that you see on TV, the real ones, have done pretty well in their economic management and their economic experience across the war. Not Ukraine. Ukraine is decimated. Ukraine has fallen back 30, 40 years. It'll take them to catch up to all that's been done. A third to a half of the population of the country left. And who knows whether and when they will come back. The Eurozone, the U.S. ally closest to Ukraine, how did they do? They did terribly. Their economic growth in 2023, 1.5%. That's a lot less than 2.5%. They paid a heavy price. Not as heavy as the Ukrainians, of course. But they paid a heavy price. And I wonder, and I think you should, how long the alliance around Ukraine will survive with that kind of a different cost, real economic cost, to the American people who still and all got a growing economy and the Europeans who did not. But that's not the end of the story. Let's take a look at what happened to two countries not immediately involved, India and China. Two of the countries that lead the BRICS, that new, different power in the world economy. In 2023, the Chinese economy, 4.6%. There are estimates higher than that. India, 6.5%, and there are estimates higher than that. For them, the war in the old part of the world, Europe, was very profitable. They're the ones who benefited from that sanctions. They're not the ones who paid the price. That often happens if you're the powerhouse. That used to be the situation of the United States, but it isn't. And that, too, is worth thinking about. The third update we have time for the first half of today is about a Chinese company you probably never heard of, BGI, Biogenomic Sequencing is what this company does. It studies our biological makeup to figure out literally how we work as biological beings. Highly developed, the fruit of much investment, much laboratory work. The United States government just finished basically banning BGI on the grounds that it has, quote, links to the Chinese government and the Chinese military, and therefore represents a national security threat. 
You remember you heard this before in terms of semiconductor chips and all kinds of electronics for telephones and so on. Analysts have already pointed out, analysts from both the left wing and the right wing, from China and from the United States, that BGI also has another quality. It offers services in rapid biogenomic sequencing that no existing American firm is capable of doing. Raising the question, is a banning of this company on grounds of national security the truth? Or is it just a convenient cover to keep a competitor out of competition until maybe an American can catch up? Well, you know, as an economist, I should tell you, it used to be an article of the conservative mentality in economics that the government should not be allowed to pick winners and losers among competitors. The fear was, if that is allowed to happen, any company that can't compete can protect itself by buying political protection from the government. And maybe that's already happening here. We'll never know. But we don't work in that universe anymore. The United States has switched from being in favor of free trade, liberal trade, open trade, open economy, world economy, rules-based order, all of that. We are now becoming economic nationalists. Politicians fall all over themselves as to figure out which company they can give the most money and protection to and get in return the most political favors. Very interesting change happening without the debate it obviously deserves. We've come to the end of the first half of today's show. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more war economics and the economics of our tax system. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic program. Economic update is what we call it. An update is what we try to do. But it is more than that, and I know you know that, but I wanted to mention that we do want to do analytics here, to explain, to look a little deeper, to present an angle that gives you an insight you might not get from the mainstream media. If we're doing that, please know that is our intention. So to finish up on what I was saying before the break, when I say that the United States is now much more of an economic nationalist power, when I use the example of banning BGI on the grounds of national security, when the truth of it may be that we are trying to slow down a competitor who's outmaneuvered American companies. I'm talking about a fundamental shift here, and one that's going to shape the future of this country. It already is. And there's an irony here I don't want you to miss. You know who has been an economic nationalist power for quite a while and doing a bang-up job of it? The People's Republic of China. 
That's one of the reasons BGI is a world-leading corporation in its field. They've gotten a lot of help from the Chinese government. I'm not arguing they got more or less than American companies. That's a debate, and it's sometimes one way, and it's sometimes the other. But what is happening here is that the United States is recognizing, without admitting it, that the Chinese have figured out how to achieve economic growth that the United States is unable to equal, or to be more exact, has been unable to equal. That's why for the last 30 years, the annual growth of GDP in China has been two to three times what it has been in the United States. No mystery, nothing strange here. The Chinese figured out a mixture of state and private enterprises controlled by an economic plan, governed by a communist party. They put all that together and they achieved economic growth, the likes of which we've never seen in the human history. And what you're seeing now is the United States is copying China. And you shouldn't be surprised. Other countries copied the United States in the 20th century because the United States in the 20th century, for most of it, was a kind of leader. Even part of the last half of the 19th, that was already true. And before that, people copied the British. I remember the first time I visited the south of France. And there along the beautiful boardwalk of Nice, overlooking the Mediterranean, one hotel after another, with names like the Hotel London, the Hotel Bristol, the Hotel... Every name was British. I said, I thought I'm in France. Yeah, but the French in those years, the 19th century, copied the economic powerhouse that was growing and outgrowing France, and that was Britain. And later on, you had the Hotel America, because it was America. And now it's becoming the Hotel Beijing, or things like it. We are copying the Chinese, but are too embarrassed to face it. It's like the similar unwillingness to face it that the American empire is in a down phase. That's part and parcel of why we are having to do to other companies what we're doing to BGI. It's a particular story about a particular company in a particular industry, but it's also about the whole change in the world economy. I want to turn now to war economics again, this time not about Ukraine. Over the last two or three weeks, the United States has vastly escalated war in the Middle East. I say it with as much emphasis as I know how, because the president of the United States, Mr. Biden, and the spokespersons around him have been explaining about how the United States doesn't want a wider war. That's like a child grabbing the ice cream cone out of your hand while telling you it's not interested in the ice cream cone in your hand. The United States bombed Yemen. The United States bombed Syria. The United States bombed Iraq. 
Those are three separate sovereign countries. None of them requested it. Most information suggests they weren't even informed of it. The first response of the Iraqi parliament was a vote requesting the United States to remove its troops from their soil. So this is not like Ukraine, where the United States is mostly working through the Ukrainian military, or the war in Gaza, where the United States is working through the Israeli defense forces. No, this is a real escalation because it's the United States directly. U.S. troops, U.S. soldiers, U.S. equipment dropping U.S.-made bombs on people there. And all over the Middle East, in the Arab countries, in the Muslim countries, in the Persian countries, all of it, there is a recognition of who their enemy has become. Clearer than ever, more dangerous than ever, and that this could be done without any discussion in our Congress, without any public debate. Think about it, friends. You're going to be paying for it. These things are very expensive. Might have been nice to have some say in what you're paying for. Now, taxes. It's an enormous topic. I don't want to pretend we can be comprehensive. Obviously, we can't. So I'm going to start by talking about particular taxes in our system that strike me as so extremely unjust, unfair that they really ought to be at the forefront of our attention during the tax season of the next several weeks. Maybe that will jog us into doing something about them. Okay, I'm going to start with wealth tax. Do we tax in the United States accumulated wealth? And the answer is yes, but only partly yes. Here we go. If you own something, that's your wealth. And most people don't own much beyond their clothing and a few books and and some furniture. But let's say you're wealthy enough that you own your own home, your apartment, your house, whatever it is. In the United States, you are required to pay a tax on the value of that home, that building that house, that condo, whatever it is. Whatever the town is where your condo is located, whether you live in it or not, if you're the owner, you must pay an annual tax, a real estate tax, to that town based on the value of the home you own. In many parts of the United States, the same applies to an automobile if you own one. You have to register it, and you are required to pay a tax based on the value of that automobile each year. Now, let's suppose you own a home, you pay your wealth tax, but it turns out you don't live in it. You rent it to other people who pay you a monthly rent. The government comes and says, you must pay a tax on the income generated by that house. In other words, you are taxed twice. First on the value of the house by the town where it's 
located, then by Uncle Sam on the income you get. Same is true if you own a car, but you use it to provide taxi rides to people who pay you a fee for that. you got to pay income tax on the taxi rides you've sold on top of the wealth tax for the car that you own. Okay, you with me? So far, so far, so simple. Now, here comes the punchline. You could, of course, sell your house. And you could hold your wealth in some other form. Instead of owning a $100,000 home, you now own $100,000 worth of shares of General Motors Corporation. Can you do that? Yes. Take about 10 seconds to sell, not so much to sell your house. That usually takes longer. But it takes 10 seconds to buy shares of General Motors. But now get ready, folks, because here comes a wonderful injustice that makes my blood boil. What is the wealth tax in the United States on $100,000 of General Motors shares? Answer, zero. No one taxes the wealth. The federal government doesn't, your state government doesn't, and your local government doesn't. When you sell your house, You no longer have to pay property tax to your town because that's now the burden of whoever bought the house from you. And if you choose to hold your wealth in stocks and bonds, then you get out of any wealth tax whatsoever. The richest people in America, this should come as no surprise, own most of their wealth in the form of stocks and bonds. Most wealthy people do. They don't hold the bulk of their wealth in a car or a home. You know who does that? People who aren't wealthy. People who are just one cut above living from paycheck to paycheck. They might have enough for a down payment on a home or to buy a car. So the super rich, the 10% of Americans who own 80% of the shares do not face a wealth tax. There is no excuse for this. None. Zero. You know why that exists? Because rich people have been worried enough, clever enough, coordinated enough to lean on the politicians who were corrupt enough to do the deal. The rich supported the politicians, funded them, donated to them, whatever word you like. And they got in return a wealth tax system that exempts the wealthiest, charges them nothing for the way they hold their wealth. Wow. You live in that, friends. And are we talking about significant wealth? Oh, yeah. 20 trillion minimum, probably more. We could tax it at unbelievable low rate. And the government of this country would be flush with taxes. From whom? From those most able to pay. From the richest amongst us. There it is. A tax on the richest. Doesn't hurt them. They lose 5% of what they have. 2% of what they have. They're still the richest people in the country. Meanwhile, our city, states, and, and federal government can do for all of us 
what would bring us together as a nation far better than any of the ceremonies we now pretend to get excited about several times a year. We've come to the end of today's time, but in subsequent programs, I will be talking about other aspects of our tax system. The exemptions from having to pay tax given to religious churches, schools, health facilities. What's the logic there? What's the injustice? Inheritance taxes, which we once had, but don't have hardly anymore, so that rich people can pass on their wealth to the next generation. And then the Social Security disaster, which is a story unto itself. It's been a pleasure as always, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week.